Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to the end of the chapter is this really important text that we've spent a couple of weeks kind of introducing and getting up to, but it's Paul's prayer for enablement. Paul's prayer for enablement for the Ephesian believers. Now, again, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, we have noted that Ephesians chapter 3 is really the entire chapter, in a sense, has been heading this direction. This has been, this is the goal of the chapter. The purpose of the chapter is for Paul to get to this prayer of enablement. But the first half of the chapter, from verse 1 to verse 13, is a bit of a, a digression in thought. And what Paul does is he announces the purpose of the church, the plan of God. And we took, what, I think three weeks to examine those first 13 verses. But He's done that, that digression of thought, in order to ultimately, uh, you know, explain some things and set the tone, but get to the prayer that he is going to hear record from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Recall with me that in this verse, verse 14, the beginning verse of our text, Paul returns back to the purpose of prayer which he began. Again, if you've got your Bible open, let me draw your attention to this. But chapter 3, verse 1, recall, he opens the chapter by saying, For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And then it's like he takes this digression of thought. Right? He has to explain why he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ and he is a prisoner for the Gentiles. Right? He's, he's a, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's an important component in God's purpose and God's plan to reach the Gentiles so they can in turn reach the Jewish nation. And we talked about that the last couple of weeks and the manifold wisdom of God and the plan of God that he has been unfolding down through the ages. But Paul was an important part of that plan. But notice how he says, for this cause... But then he doesn't answer that. Like he doesn't complete that thought until, go to verse 14 now, pop ahead. Now we see, he says, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So in other words, verse 14 picks up where Paul left off in verse 1. Verse 1 to 13 is really a digression of thought where he explains a couple of things, but now he's getting back to the purpose, the, right, the cause. He says, for this cause, this is why I'm bowing my knees. And so what he's going to do from verse 14 of our chapter to the end of the, uh, the chapter, verse 21, He's going to give a prayer for God to enable the Ephesian believers. Now, again, if you've been with us in our study of the book of Ephesians, you're already aware of this, but this is Paul's second intercessory prayer that's contained in the book. And it is really remarkable when you consider the amount of ink that is dedicated to these two intercessory prayers. It really is pretty remarkable when you just look at percentage-wise the amount of, of Ephesians that is dedicated to this. But we saw the first prayer back in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and that was a prayer for enlightenment. Paul was asking God to enlighten the eyes, open the eyes of the mind and the heart of the readers, the Ephesians, so that they might understand the, the character of God, the work of God, the plan of God. Also that they could, of course, go on for the cause of Christ and uh, etc., but that prayer for enlightenment in chapter 1 is now paralleled, if you will, or undergirded, further advanced and supported by chapter 3, which is now the prayer for enablement. So it's interesting, and we'll talk about this as we work our way through the text, but this prayer 
In chapter 3, that is, this prayer serves as both the climax of the first three chapters as well as the introduction to the next three chapters. It's a bit of a hinge text in that regard, but it's climaxing so much of what he's already discussed, this important first half of the book of Ephesians that is very doctrinal in its focus. He is summarizing these big ideas, and he's climaxing them here in this prayer. We'll get to it probably not uh, this time, but uh, again, not next week because Chuck Carabtree will be here, but the week after, it'll probably take us two weeks to get through this prayer. But he ends the prayer with a doxology, and that's the climactic moment, right? A doxology is kind of a clear literary device to break uh, the, the text and to show us a clear division. And we'll see that more so next time. But the prayer ends with that doxology. So that doxology helps us see that this is the climax of these first three chapters. But then on the other hand, it's introducing the next three chapters, the latter half of the book, which is all about the practical behavior of the believer. And what's so important is he's, he's saying, hey, this, uh, what we need to, how we need to live, chapters four, five, six, is really important but we need God's power and enablement to do it. So hence, he prays for that power and enablement. All right, does that make sense? So again, I already mentioned that. Look at that. I got ahead on myself on a slide. I'm just running away with this. But this prayer ends with a stirring doxology. You already know that, so you're super smart. Moving on. But it also, again, prepares the way for what's coming because his request for enablement is precisely what the readers need. And we'll get into this a little bit more, again, a couple of weeks when we get there. In chapter 4, verse 1, there's a clear shift where he goes from what we ought believe to how we ought behave. And we'll, we'll probably give a whole session to it, uh, just the first verse of chapter 4, when he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. In other words, I just spent three chapters telling you about your worthy vocation, this wonderful calling, this destiny that God has in store for you as a believer in Christ. But now he says we ought walk worthy of it. And that word walk is going to be the key verb that he's using through the rest of the book in chapters 4, 5, and 6. All right, so again, as we're heading towards that practical section of the book, we st he stops off here or he pauses and he, and he says, all right, we need to pray for God's enabling power. And that's our text here in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. So again, this tells us that you know, the supernatural enablement for believers that Paul's praying for here is, again, it, it, it counters the supernatural opposition that believers will receive or that they experience that'll be discussed later. In chapter 4, he gives one verse to it. Chapter 6, uh, he's going to give several verses to it. This idea of this spiritual battle that we are in. In fact, uh, Pastor Daniel was just teaching, introducing to us that song, O Church Arise. Uh, man, you sang it really well, so a number of you may have known it already. But it's a great song that will... It's singing a number of principles, as he pointed out, that we're seeing here in the book of Ephesians. Many of them we're going to see particularly in chapter 6. But this idea that we are in a spiritual battle, oh church arise, put your armor on. In other words, get involved in the battle. But you have to realize that there is a battle that we're in. So Paul's going to talk about that later. But in retrospect, once we get to those passages in chapter 4, chapter 6, and we look backwards... Now we will get all the more insight into why he spent half a chapter here in chapter three praying for supernatural power, the strengthening of the inner man, as he'll say, because we need that power in order to engage in the fight. 
So that's what's really important to see. Now again, just by way of introduction, this prayer continues Paul's pattern. Like I've said many times, Ephesians seems to be Paul at his best. And we see him creating new words, coining new words, having very long, elaborate sentences, elaborate vocabulary, etc. Well, we're going to see it here again, that this section, this prayer from verse 14 to verse 21, is one more of those examples of one long sentence, where it's, it's actually a, an 86-word sentence. I encourage you sometime to just sit down and see if you can write an 86-word sentence. And then he caps it off with a doxology of 37 words. All right, so good luck with that. But I, yeah, I would say it's a good mental exercise. But Paul is he's just writing at his best. And he's saying, hey, this, these long sentences, but he shows us the, you know, that one big sentence has continuity of thought. He's praying for the supernatural enabling power. Now, what we're going to do in our study of the prayer, we'll read it in just a moment. We're going to subdivide it into three major chunks. We'll probably get through the first two today, hopefully, by God's grace. And then next time, we'll, we'll kind of review where we, picked, where we left off, pick it up, look at the final doxology that ends this first half of the book of Ephesians and ends and concludes his prayer. And then we'll transition to uh, the, you know, the latter half of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6. But as we look at Paul's prayer here in chapter 3, we're going to look first at his posture. He says, I bow my knees before the, you know, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe how he's, you know, he's, uh, he's named all things. We'll get to that. So we, I just want to draw attention to the posture he takes in prayer because he draws our attention to it. But then secondly, the core of it is the actual petition. What is he praying for? The petition is centered in verses 16 to 19. And again, if, if we're able, we'll get that far this morning. And then we'll see he caps it off with a doxology or his praise to God who has infinite, boundless strength and power. And that's what we're praying for. We're trying to tap into that infinite power of God so that we can be empowered, enabled to live the Christian life as he wants us to live, all right? So that's what we have ahead of us. If you got your Bible, let's read the text together, and then we'll take it a uh, piece at a time, all right? Ephesians 3, verse 14, he says this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Right, that's really the core petition of the passage. Right, he's praying that we would be granted, because of his riches and glory, God has a plenty of surplus power and glory and strength right, that he can give and impart to us. So he says, Lord, we're asking you to strengthen us with might, by your spirit. In other words, there's the channel through which we're going to receive the, uh, the power of God. He says, and we're receiving it in the inner man. We'll come back to that. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. In other words, all of us need to do this. This is not just you know, reserved for a few of us. All the saints need to understand or comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Again, Pastor Daniel uh, brought attention to that as we sang it moments ago. The love of God, right, greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. That's a great song for this text. Is the reality is, he says, the love of Christ passes knowledge. 
and will forever endure the saints and angels' song. I love that line, right? That we're going to be in eternity singing uh, of the love of God and we're never going to run out of things to say. So he says, that you might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Right, there's the prayer. Now, here's the praise of the doxology, verse 20 and 21. He says, now unto him that is able to, uh, to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end, amen. Amen, right? That's a good one. So when we look at this, again, we're probably today only going to work through the first couple of points, the posture that he takes and the petition that he makes in verses 14 to 19. But let's look at it. First, verses 14 and 15, Paul draws our attention to the posture that he takes in the prayer uh, that, he, that he utters. Again, notice how appropriate this is. This prayer of the Apostle Paul flows out of the comments that he just finished making back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, the central idea of that passage is that God is near to us. He has brought us nigh by the blood of Christ. And now believers, Gentile believers even, have peace with God and we have access to the Father through the Spirit. Right? That has been the big theme of the latter half of Ephesians chapter 2, that we as Gentiles have this access to God on equal terms, uh, you know, with the, the Jewish nation, now through the person and work of Christ and what he has accomplished in the atonement. Well, that idea of access is now being employed. Because of that access, as a result of that access, Paul can pray to the Father on the behalf of the Ephesian believers. He can go to God on their behalf. And as he does this, he models for them how to approach God in prayer, particularly intercession for others. So Paul is modeling for the Ephesian believers and by implication for us as well, as we read this many centuries later, we read Paul's prayer. We too can watch Paul as he functions as a model for us on how to approach God, to take full advantage of this access we have to God through Christ, uh, you know, because of Christ and through the Spirit. So he's modeling it for us. But in particular, he says in verse 14, that for this cause, I bow my knees. Now, you may be aware of this already, but bowing the knees is the, the posture that he, directs, uh, that, that he directs our attention to here in verse 14. But it's a little different than what was normal or more common in the Jewish culture of his day. People in the first century, particularly the Jewish people, often stood and lifted their hands to pray. We see that posture mentioned a number of times in the Psalter. We see it a couple times show up in the Gospels. There's numerous postures of prayer that we see throughout the Scripture and throughout Jewish you know, history and culture. But the, the, what seemed to be dominant in Paul's day was the posture of standing and lifting the hands to pray. But Paul is in a different posture here. And what this seems to imply is the importance of what he's praying for. He's going to bow the knee. He's going to get down in the posture, one scholar calls it, the posture of discipline. How many of you have prayed for long lengths of time on your knees? It's harder, right? It's a posture of discipline. It, before long, depending on how old you are, you know, those knees start hurting. <laughs> and you're like, oh, doggone it, that really hurts. In fact, there's a particular dude in church history that was known, remember this? He was known as Camel Knees. 
camel knees. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, it, we think it refers to the fact that he had these calluses on his knees. He spent so much time in prayer that he had calluses formed on his knees. Now, I'm just telling you, the next time you have a callus on your knee, come show me. I want to see it, okay? But I'm just saying, this guy, he knew how to pray. Does anyone remember who that was? James, the author of the book of James. That's right. James is pastor of the early church in Jerusalem. He's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, that James is known to church history as old camel knees. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. In fact, even when he was being martyred, they, uh, they, he, they rushed in to arrest him and they found him praying. And it's, it's kind of a cool story. So anyways, but the point is, Paul says, I'm bowing my knees. And it's a discipline. It's a posture of discipline. And it, it's the picture of fervency in prayer. That's kind of the idea. So what he's doing is, again, Paul is praying to God for us, for the Ephesian believers, but then by implication us as well, our later readers. But Paul is praying to God for them, and he's confident because of God's credentials. That's what he's getting at in verse, the end of verse 14 and into verse 15 when he says, I, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he elaborates, verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, later in the text, we read it a moment ago, but he's, when he gets to the doxology in verse 20, he's going to highlight the fact that God is all-powerful. And we'll talk about that probably more so next time, like I said, but it will highlight in verse 20 that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think according to the power that works in us. In other words, this infinite, powerful God has all the resources necessary for us to live a life of godliness. So that's why Paul is going to him. He's going to him because of the credentials of God. But in verse 15, he introduces this prayer with the acknowledgement that the Father is the controller and source of everything in the world. That all that we have in the way of spiritual blessing and achievement, is due to him, to God. In fact, he says in verse 15 that God, right, verse 15, of whom or by whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, the idea of naming something, all right, the naming of every family or grouping of humans and even angels is a way of stressing God's might and sovereignty, as Clinton Arnold points out. He goes on to say, as the one who created the powers in heaven and gave them their classification and identity, God is shown to be supreme. In fact, not long ago, uh, in our marriage conference, just a couple of weeks back, we talked through Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. We talked about companionship and marriage in context of creation. And one of our little side trails, we talked for just a few minutes on this idea of naming, that when God creates all things in Genesis chapter 1, he names the, the things on the first, well, four days of creation. And then he has Adam name the things, the, the creatures that God makes on days five and six of creation. And the idea is that the act of naming implies ownership. It implies power over, right? That's the idea. It's just like you and I, right? and I, and I use the illustration of how we name, we give a name to our children, Maybe to your dog or some people to their car, whatever. But the idea is it's our stuff, right? And we get to choose the name for our children, for our whatever. But it's exercising ownership. 
It's the, it's the display of authority. So God names the things, you know, whether it's the sky or the sea or the sun or the moon, he names the things that he creates in the first four days. But then he has Adam name the things on days five and six. Why? Because Adam was to exercise dominion, lordship over creation, over the fish of the air, or fish of the air. What in the world am I talking about? <laughs> Flying fish. It's a thing. It really is. It is. Where was I? Fish of the sea, fowl of the air, there we go, right? And then all the things that crawl on the face of the earth, the beast, the field, etc. Well, those are the things that God gives Adam dominion over, and therefore he is exercising that dominion when he names them, right? And we see that in Genesis chapter 2. And anyways, we could go on about that. It even, we even took a little rabbit trail on the idea of when people are renamed in the scripture. Remember that? We have people like Jacob, who's renamed Israel. We have you know, multiple examples of this through the scripture, but the, the act of renaming, it even was done secularly. We drew our attention to Daniel, right? Daniel, Daniel, that's a Hebrew name. It means God is my judge, Daniel. But then he's drug off, right, to Babylon as a captive to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar renames him with a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, right? And the idea is that the act of renaming was the act of dominion, dominance, that Nebuchadnezzar was saying when he renames him, he says, I'm in charge of you. I get to call you whatever I want to call you because you are my slave, right? That's the idea. Well, so this concept is, is important for us to understand, just the cultural concept of naming something. But here, Paul says that he's praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom or by whom the whole family, whether we're talking heaven or whether we're talking on earth, Right? God is the one who exercises dominion, whether it's over the sun, moon, and stars, or even the angelic hosts. The idea of the families of heaven would probably also include angels, angelic hosts, the principalities and powers that he just mentioned back up in verse 10 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. In other words, God is the sovereign God over everything. And so that sort of power is what Paul is praying to. So Paul, therefore, bows his knees to the one true God. That's the idea. He's omnipotent over all of his creation, including even the rebellious powers. Because more on this later, but when we get to chapter 6, right, and we talked about it briefly back up in chapter 3, verse 10, right, the principalities comment, the principalities and powers comment. He's going to get back to that in chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness, you know, etc. Well, that idea is that God is the sovereign even over the rebellious powers, including Satan himself. He'll say in chapter 4, Ephesians 4.27, he says, don't give place to the devil. And we'll give a you know, sermon when we get there. That's a pretty cool passage. But he says, don't give place to the devil. Jesus taught us to pray this as well, did he not? We are to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from and the word and the word itself can be translated evil in general or the evil one as in a reference to satan himself and the idea is that satan and his realm is powerful and they are after us and they're targeting us but guess who's more powerful the one of whom all families in heaven or on earth are named right that's god and so the whole point is he, Paul, is going to the one true living God and he's bowing in prayer to him to access the power that God has and that God is willing to grant. So that's what he then asks for. 
verse 16. Verse 16 and following, again, this is the core of the, the prayer. The petition itself is centered here, located in verses 16 to 19. But in this text, Paul is praying for strength, enablement, help, aid. That's the idea. And he's praying that God would provide this strength, enablement, help, or aid by the Spirit, right? The Spirit's channeling it up to us, but he's giving it to the inner man, the inner man. This is the side of grace, as I say, that enables. Saving grace, the grace of God is a big concept. But the word grace is sometimes used as a synonym for mercy, right? The idea is unmerited favor from God. But it also has an enabling aspect, a word that means to provide power, to provide help and strength. And so this is the, again, the enabling side, not just the saving side of God's grace, but the enabling side of God's grace. What Paul is essentially saying, what he's asking for here in this text is he's saying, Father, take your spirit and strengthen your children. Help us to walk in the newness of life that you are calling us to walk in. But what's interesting is the strength that Paul talks about here is no ordinary strength. Because notice again where the text says this kind of strength should reside. Paul is asking and speaking and praying about this strength in the inner man. Strength in the inner man. In other words, the strength that Paul prays for does not consist of muscle or raw power, right? He's not saying, Lord, help me go to the gym and put on 50 pounds of muscle, right? That's not the necess- necessarily the strength he's praying for. Rather, he's saying, I want strength on the in-, in the inner man. He doesn't pray for brawn or burliness, but rather strength to reside in the inner man. He's praying for unseen strength. He's praying for God to give us internal spiritual fortitude, right? Strength of character, the ability to obey God, walk with God, endure trials in life. Because don't forget, just a couple of verses earlier in verse 13, Paul talks about how he himself is in midst tribulation, right? He's in prison while he's writing this letter. And Paul has been sitting in prison, I mean, again, two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome, total of four years. Somewhere during his Roman imprisonment, he writes this letter. So we're looking at at least two, maybe three plus years that he's already been in prison, somewhere along that timeline. And yet Paul is admitting that he says, hey, we have strength in the inner man. We have the uh, ability, the enablement, the fortitude to endure trials and tribulations because God can grant us that strength. And so Paul himself is an example of it. Again, he's modeling what that looks like for us. But he's praying for this unseen strength. Now, if then Paul prays for an inward strength, how, according to our text, does one receive such a strength? Well, again, if it was raw power or muscle that we're talking about, well, a weightlifter receives that by exercise. But how does the saint receive the inward strength of the soul that Paul here is praying for? Well, he tells us. He says that we're to receive this by the Spirit and the inner man, but then he goes on in verse 17, saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In other words, Paul is saying, he's making an interesting connection of thoughts here that is so profound. This is really what, what, we're, what we need to learn, what Paul is driving at. He's praying that Christ would dwell in them. 
that through Christ dwelling in them, they would receive strength and power. But then, of course, we have to ask the question, doesn't Christ already dwell in them? Right? It, it, through the, the Spirit, and the, we, we've, we've seen that elsewhere in the Scripture. We see it, in fact, in Colossians, which he probably wrote right before Ephesians. In Colossians chapter 1, he actually uses that idiom, that this, this indwelling Spirit of God in the believer. He says, is Christ in you the hope of glory? He says in Colossians chapter 1. So the question is, well, wait a minute. I thought we already had the Spirit of God. We already had Christ dwelling in us via the Spirit of God. But the word that Paul uses here to describe dwell is more than, it's referring to something more, something deeper than what you and I would call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Rather, the word is getting at the idea of being settled down or being at home with. And there's a difference in these Greek words, and we could spend a lot of time tracking that down, but there's a difference between inhabiting and dwelling. You and I, I mean, again, if you've been to people's houses and they have, you know, some nice little piece of decoration hanging on the wall says something about, you know, how laughter take, makes a house into a home or something like that. You ever seen those? That's getting at this idea. There's a difference between a house and a home. There's a difference between inhabiting and having a home where you feel comfortable, right? In other words, I remember first time I went to college and I got room, roommates. You know what I'm saying? Now, I had brothers, and I had, you know, people that I grew up with in my home, but they're family, and there's a level of comfortability that I have with them. Well, then I go to college, and you now have roommates that you just met yesterday, and you're learning about them, and you are dwelling in the same room, but are you really at home with said individual? Are you comfortable with them yet? Not so much, right? I mean, I had some roommates that I really got along with. I had several roommates over the, you know, the course of my college career, but I had some weird ones. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, can we, we could pause here and everybody share a weird roommate story, you know? Praise God, this guy wasn't in my room, but there was, I was, a, I was an RA, I was a hall monitor, you know, one of those guys, and there was several rooms under my watch care, and there was one dude that, I mean, he, Lord love him, but he refused to shower, like, it was actually like this religious thing for him. Like, he thought it was, he was somehow more godly for showering less. Like, he, it was weird. Like, he kind of had this monkish, you know, ascetic mentality. Like, I'm going to beat myself and sleep less and not shower or have good hygiene. And I'm telling you, his room reeked up the whole hall. And there was the, at the end of the year, you know, they, they have that white glove inspection. Like, when you're moving out and going, you have to clean your room. And it has to pass inspection before you leave. And, oh my word, like I had to pass this guy in his room and I, 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 I couldn't do it in good conscience because, you know, they scrubbed it clean and I'm like, you could still smell it. You know what I'm saying? The, the room just reeked. And we could go on about this. I have so many weird roommate stories. But I digress. The point is, there's a big difference between inhabiting a space with a roommate and dwelling comfortably in a home with family. You see what I'm getting at? Well, that's what Paul seems to be drawing out with this particular Greek word, this idea. He says, hey, does Christ dwell in us via the Spirit of God? Well, if you're a believer, yeah. You already have the Spirit of God in you. However, the question remains, is he a welcomed guest? Is he 
family? Are you, as he'll say later, are we walking in the Spirit? Or are we being filled with the Spirit? Are we living in harmony with the Spirit? Because at the beginning of my, you know, semester, when you first introduce, you know, meet your roommate and everything's a little awkward and he's weird and you're trying to get to know his quirks and he's trying to get to know your quirks. But then after you have figured each other out and you've kind of, you know, worked things out and maybe you're with that dude for a year, but at the end of that time, doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes you end up having, that's like your best friend now. It's like, whoa, you know, like we, we, we figured each other out. There's, there's still people that I'll contact from college that I haven't seen in years, but we forged a bond in that dorm room. You know what I'm saying? But the idea is that we, there's, a, there's a process. There you are. You're in the same room, but are you learning to live together in harmony? That's the idea, is we must learn to live together with the Spirit of God in harmony with the Spirit of God. And guess what? Who's in charge? Not us. Now, again, if you've ever been in that dorm room situation, then you get it, right? It's like this. It's, anyone have chickens in here? You know what I'm saying? You know what a pecking order is? You know what I'm talking about? If you're in a dorm room with like four dudes, you have to establish a bit of a pecking order. So the first time, and weird story, and then I promise I'll get off this. I'm spending way too much time on this. So I'm not kidding. I was freshman. I go in, first roommate. I mean, I, I took the top bunk, right? Because he's, he's like a junior, because that's how you set the pecking order. I'm a freshman. He's a junior. So I'm the nobody. And I come in, and he just decides to just test my strength. He, I'm sitting on the top bunk, because I'm like, hey, you get the bottom bunk. I get it. I'll, I'll take the top. I'm the peon. I get it. So I go, and he just randomly walks up, and he grabs me off of the top bunk, and he throws me on the floor, and we start wrestling. And he grabs this water bottle, and he was trying to squirt me in the face. Don't you all want to go to college now? Isn't this great? It's like initiation, all right? And so we go at it for like 10 minutes until finally I have him pinned on the floor. I take his water bottle. I snap it in half and throw it across the hall. And then I said, you want up now? And he's like, okay, let me up. And guess what? No problems after that, right? And we, we figured it out. We know each other. We're good, right? Everything's good from there forward. Well, the point is, in a sense, when we are learning to dwell with the Spirit of God, there's a rivalry. Have you ever had a rivalry in your home between a husband and a wife, between children and parents, siblings? You ever had rivalry in your home? Sure. Well, there's, there's that chaos. There's that lack of order. There's a rivalry going on inside of you and me. If the Spirit of God is living inside there, praise the Lord, but guess what? He's in charge, but I want to be in charge. And I want to tell him what's what. But he's the one who's really in charge, and I have to learn to submit to him and walk in the Spirit to say yes to him and no to me. That's the Christian life. And Paul says, we need to learn to dwell with Christ, that he would be at home, that we would learn that he's in charge, I submit to him, and then everything works. And what he says, he goes on, he talks about this wonderful relationship that is developing between the believer and Christ. Because he says, verse 17, that Christ dwell in your hearts by faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the uh, breadth, length, depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Let me unpack that for in the next few minutes. He uses the term, twin terms in verse 17, to be rooted and grounded in love. These are two terms. One is an agricultural term. The other is an architectural term. But they're getting at the same idea. He's using two different metaphors to say the same thing. The point is mainly this, that love is rich soil wherein we are rooted and nourished in order to thrive, to flourish in life. Again, I think this is interesting. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul will say to the Galatians that they, because they were walking away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they were troubled and they were unsettled. They were unsettled. They were not rooted and grounded, firmly established, deeply rooted, nourished, have everything they need to thrive and to flourish. They didn't have that because they were walking away from the gospel, Galatians chapter 1, verse 7. But the flip side is if we do learn to have this relationship with Christ and we learn that he loves us, that he loves us to an infinite cosmic degree, and I learn that whatever he tells me to do is for my benefit, that my submission and obedience to him is actually for my good. Why? Because he loves me. He loves me more than I could ever understand. But Paul says, God, help us understand that. Help us to plumb the depths, to understand the heights, the the, the length and the width of the love of Christ, the cosmic beyond that, the infinite measure of Christ's love for us. He says, we need to know this. Because that's when we settle in to that relationship. We're family. We trust him. We follow him. We quit resisting him. We quit fighting against him. But we follow him. So Paul's prayer is that they would experience something that goes beyond, ultimately, their capacity to know. Namely, to know and comprehend the love of Christ. I love this. But he goes on to describe in verse 18 how we are to know the dimensions, right? The breadth, length, depth, height. But then he goes on in verse 19 to say that we need to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. In other words, the full dimensions of God's infinite love are ultimately beyond comprehension. Hence that song we sang moments ago, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. That's the dimensions of God's love are beyond what we can ultimately comprehend. But Paul says, you got to comprehend it. Wait, I think that sounds a little contradictory. But there in that lies the key, the source of our strength. This faith-filled belief in God's love through Christ via the Spirit in the life of the believer, this faith-filled belief And his love for me is the source of my strength. In fact, my inner strength directly corresponds to the depth of my understanding, appraisal, and appreciation of God's love for me. That sounds a little wordy, but I try to do that on purpose because the point is, my inner strength directly corresponds to the depth of my understanding. Okay, understanding meaning intellectual ability to comprehend And most of us in the room, we just, you know, well, if you were in the room, unless you weren't singing, most of us just sang that song, The Love of God. We intellectually know that the Bible says, God loves me. 
We sing the Sunday school song, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know that intellectually. However, we need to go beyond a mere understanding of that to an appraisal and an appreciation of that. Appraisal is the word that means value. You ever had your house appraised? Right, you ever saw, you know, tried to sell or buy a house and you got the appraiser show up and he looks at your house and then he tells you what it's worth? That's what appraisal means. You are estimating the value. So when you look at God's love, I like to say it's more than just saying, okay, God loves me, but try to put a number on it. Try to appraise exactly how much does God love me? How much? And that appraisal then leads to, third word, appreciation. I sit back in awe and wonderment. God loves me that much. And as every time I plumb the depths and I study the scripture and I get a new insight on how much God loves me, how God loves me, then Paul says, you're just scratching the surface. In other words, this is an infinite pursuit. You will never run out of things to say. If the oceans were ink, we would drain them dry writing about the love of God. And still, he says, if every you know, stock on earth were a quill, every man a scribe by trade, still to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it. But that's a lifelong pursuit. And that's what we need to do, is to learn to understand, appraise, appreciate God's love for me. Understanding and accepting this at a deeper level is what gives me all that God intends for me, or as Paul says, to be full of the fullness of God. The end of verse 19, he says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Why? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Everything that God intends for me, I can receive, I can be filled with through a deeper understanding, acceptance, appraisal, appreciation of God's love for me. And this strength is sourced in God, the Father. It's amplified by God, the Son, and applied by God, the Spirit. Notice we've got the triune God all at work right here in the text. We're praying to the Father. We're going to receive this strength through the Spirit. And it's all rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. In fact, go to Romans just real quick. Keep your finger here. Romans 5. Paul, this is a big theme in Paul. All right? When I discovered this, it was like, man, I just started seeing it everywhere in Paul's writings. But Paul talks about it again. Romans 5, which he wrote uh, before the book of Ephesians, but nonetheless, the fact that Paul prays for this is, indicates that without the Holy Spirit, without God's supernatural agency in my life, I could never understand, appraise, or appreciate God's love for me. In Romans 5.5, 5, he says this. Romans 5.5, 5, I say the same thing in 8.38, but in Romans 5.5, 5, he says, and hope makes not ashamed. He talks about this process of tribulation and growth in character and patience, experience, and how it produces hope in our lives and how hope makes us not ashamed, verse 5, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. In other words, I gain greater understanding of God's love for me through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God's the one who flips the light switch on, who provides enlightenment to the depth of breadth, height, length of God's love for me. And when I understand that, now I'm enabled, I'm strengthened because no matter what I go through, I know God's in charge, he loves me and whatever I'm going through is for my ultimate good. 
I can trust that. Let me amplify on that for just a second. All right, I've got just a few minutes. I've shared this before, and and uh, and, I, and every time I share it, there's always someone new that hadn't heard it, and there and it's it's profound. I review this often. The simple reality that we as human beings are made for love. We are made, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 26 to 28, we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of the triune God. God is inherently a relational being. So therefore are we. This idea of relationship, we're built that way, we're designed that way, but the root of a good relationship is found in faithful and selfless love. Love to be rooted and grounded in love. What's the foundation and that architectural metaphor? What's you know the, the soil that we're to be rooted into so we can grow high and produce right fruit and, and have uh, lives that are nourished and flourished? What is it? It's the love of God that is at the root of it. It's the foundation stone. The root of relationship is found in faithful, selfless love. In other words, relationships are built upon giving and receiving love, affection, and acceptance. You understand that. At some level, you understand that. But what we discover from the scripture is that when sin entered the world, what happened next? When sin entered the world, mankind ceased to be selfless. Rather, we became inherently selfish. Life is all about me. As a result of that, Genesis chapter 3 tells us relationships no longer became about selfless service towards others and enjoying mutual love. Rather, it became all about self-seeking satisfaction. I am a, not a giver, I'm a taker now because I have a sinful nature. It's all about me. I'm the center of my universe and you're supposed to serve me. But that idea is now, now our agendas are butting heads. So this idea of enjoying mutual love is lost. So what we need to now do is to learn to love, to be loved and to love. This idea of this reciprocal love. Psych- psychologists have long acknowledged this. This is one of the deepest, if not the most basic fundamental need of the human psyche. Your soul spirit, your internal. Now I can feed you and I can clothe you and I can house you and you can survive, right? Externally, physically. But when it comes to your soul spirit, when it comes to your inner man, when it comes to your ability to cope with life and live with meaning, joy, and purpose, your most basic fundamental need is love. We need to be loved and love. But here in reality, in our selfishness, rather than loving others, we just say, well, I want love, but I'm not going to serve anyone else. So our needs trump the needs of of someone else in the relationship. So now we're rivals rather than lovers. So as a result, relationships disintegrate. But this idea of looking for unconditional love, this is profound. When you think about the stages of life, we all go through this. And you are at one of these stages. But all of us are on the search for perfect, selfless, unconditional love to know that we are cherished, that we matter, that someone cares. But in our human pursuits, first, typically, right, just because of we're born and we grow, basic biology, we first begin to look for that loving relationship, that source of unconditional selfless love, we look first to our parents. Yet at some point, sooner rather than later, 
for some, we'll discover that this is an imperfect love. Do you remember the first time that your parents disappointed you? <laughs> Thanks for the giggle, right? He's like, yeah, I can give you a date and time and place. And No, <laughs> I mean, all of us are there, right? Our parents have disappointed us. So what happens? Well, after we look for that from our parents and we are disappointed because our parents are not perfect, then we start looking for love, acceptance from our peers, right? This happens right around junior high, high school, right? They start saying, well, my parents don't matter anymore. They still matter, by the way, but I'm just saying. They say, oh, parents don't matter, but my friends, they matter. What they care, or what they think about me, that's what's most important to me. So I'm going to strive for acceptance. Remember high school, right? Some of us are saying, no, don't remember high school. But you remember all the different groups? You found acceptance. Maybe you were a jock, so you were in the jock group. Maybe you were a nerd, and you're not a welcome in the jock group, but the nerds will accept you, right? Maybe you're, when I was in high school, there were emos and, you know, then druggies and, you know, all the rest, right? I mean, you have everyone break down. There's the 4-H club, you know what I'm saying? There was the rodeo people, and I just, I wasn't one of those. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, Everyone's got their niche because in that niche, they find acceptance. That's what they're looking for. Someone to care about me. Someone who will accept me as I am. But here's the thing. At some point, that bubble's going to burst. Are you going to have perfect friends that are always there, unconditionally loving you and accepting you for who you are? Except, no, 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 no. You have to conform to the club. Otherwise, you're out. And this idea, as you soon discover, oh, man, I cannot find that source of unconditional love with my peers. So what happens next? Well, at some point, we start looking for that special someone, right? Maybe somewhere in high school or college years, you start saying, oh, where's that special someone? We start daydreaming that out of all of the people on the face of the earth, one person is out there, and it's my soulmate. And that person will be so perfect. You know where I'm going with this? <laughs> That, you know, that there's like Jesus and then that person is like right here, you know? And we're like, this is going to be perfect. Well, then you get married to said individual and you discover, oh, well, they have bad breath. And they, you know, they, <laughs> they're not always on the top of their game and neither are you. And, oh, guess what? We have disagreements. Oh, guess what? We fight a little bit. Guess what? Ah, man, that perfect form of unconditional love is not there. So what happens? More often, from, more often than not, when you don't find it in your spouse, what do you do? You look for it in your children or your career. You say, well, maybe my children will love me unconditionally because that little child comes out and they just adore you. And it's like you can do no wrong and you're that person's hero and it makes you feel like Superman until they grow up and they learn how to talk and they say they don't care about you. And then you're like, oh, those children. And so you turn to career. Well, maybe what I can do, my accomplishments, maybe people will accept me and love me because of what I can do and what I can accomplish. But that doesn't work. Eventually, you lose your job. Someone does a better job than you do. And you can't find ultimate meaning there either. Again, what happens next? In our older age, we typically, if we have not yet found love and acceptance, then we may look to grandchildren. Retirement, my 401k, my retirement account, whatever, that's going to bring me happiness. When I don't have to do what people tell me I can do whatever I want and spend my money the way I want to do it, 
Well, then guess what? You start running into health problems, all that money goes to the hospital, and then you die. You know what I'm saying? And so the point is, we're looking for love on all these places. The point is that we as humans so often look for love, acceptance, meaning, purpose outside of the one only person who can ultimately give it. And who is that? Again, we sang about it moments ago. You know the answer to this. It's the love of God. The love of God is the only source of selfless, sacrificial, spotless love that we will ever experience. And this is what the Christian life is all about. And we'll develop this more as we work our way through chapters 4, 5, and 6. But this is what the Christian love is all about. It's a lifelong pursuit of shedding tepid thoughts about God's love and learning that God is the center of the universe and he loves me more than I can imagine, I can comprehend, I can ever express. And the more I understand that, accept that, value that, the more grounded I am. That it doesn't matter what you think of me because I know what God thinks of me. And I can face trials, I can navigate life, I can live with purpose and meaning because God loves me. That's the anchor to our soul. Does that make sense? That's what Paul says. In, uh, in order for us to live with this purpose, meaning that's what we got to have. We have to have an in-depth, always growing, dynamic knowledge of God's love for me through Christ. That's what it's all about. And as we attempt to pursue this, we, we do it in, in company with one another, privately as we read and we pray, we read through the scripture, we learn to know God, we worship one, uh, together with one another, we sing songs and hymns of God's goodness and his grace and his love that we just did you know, a moment ago, or as we're here today to participate in, we take regular times where we pause and we say, God, let's think and meditate on God's love for us. That's designed, right? We have the design built in, various things, but here today we're here to participate in communion, the Lord's table. Because in doing that, the purpose of it, one of the purposes of communion is to do just that, to remember, okay, how much does God love me? And I encourage you as we do this, all right, we'll transition in just a moment, but I encourage you to do this. As we spend the time first in personal reflection before God, confession of personal sin we hand out the elements and as in those moments as we participate in the lord's table i encourage you start learning to practice this in your own life to meditate on the depth length breadth height of the love of god in other words start quantifying god's love for you how do you do that well i encourage you it ultimately read your bible but how do you do that Learn of what God did for you in Christ. Think through the gospel narrative. Think through what Jesus did, what he sacrificed to come from heaven to earth, what he went through on the cross of Calvary, what he did to display that love, how ascending into heaven he sent the spirit, how that spirit is working right now in our hearts in the middle of this room as we sit here, the spirit of God is with us and he's working to flip on the light. Right? To help us, as, it says, as Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, to shed abroad in our hearts the love of God. And as we understand these concepts, we implement them in our thinking and we meditate upon them, we are drawn in our affections towards him, then we are being shaped and fashioned and strengthened in the inner man. That's how it works. So I encourage you, practice this, even in the next few moments, as we participate in the Lord's table 
contemplate these things, meditate on these things, let them sink in from an intellectual understanding to a heart knowledge of God's love for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray in these next few moments as we participate in the Lord's table, as we remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, as we contemplate the love of God displayed in the person of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that, Lord, you would help us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are open wide to understand that which passes all knowledge, to gain greater insight, understanding, appraisal, appreciation for your love for us. And may we never stop pursuing a deeper knowledge of your love. Help us, Lord, in the moments to follow as we contemplate the sacrifice of Christ, the greatest display of love in all the universe. God commended his love toward us, Paul says, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we contemplate that and we participate in this memorial, might you, Lord, help us. Help us to grow in awareness and knowledge of your love for us. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.